In retrospect, it is kind of incredible how willfully complacent Europe has been this last decade or so in both directions. To the east, Europe has been complacent about Russia. Russia attacked Georgia in 2008, Ukraine in 2014 and again in 2022 and has conducted several assassinations on European soil using nerve agents and radioactive poisons. Yet Europe still bought Russia's gas and Russia's oil and attended Russia's World Cup, Russia's Winter Olympics, Russia's Grand Prix. To the West, Europe has been complacent about the United States. In 2016, the US elected a president, Donald Trump, obviously indifferent to Europe and openly contemptuous of NATO, which he appears to regard not as a defensive alliance, but some form of protection racket, of which America is the bagman. In 2024, the US may well re-elect Trump, who has already said he would encourage Russia to do, quote, whatever the hell it wants, unquote, with those NATO allies who Trump perceives as derelict with their payments. A scenario in which Europe finds itself at war with Russia and unable to rely on the US may not be likely, but it is an uncomfortable distance from impossible. In this special episode recorded at the recent Munich Security Conference, we'll hear from an Estonian politician who warned of the worst and an Estonian politician who is preparing for it, as well as two people intimately responsible for Europe's defence and one who well knows how high a price Ukraine is paying for Europe's long slumber. Is there still time for Europe to rouse itself? Where should it start? And can Europe really stand alone? This is The Foreign Desk. To urge Russia to invade a country and do the hell what you want, this is beyond comprehension. Whether it motivates the laggard countries, it's hard to say. I mean, it should. That doesn't really help us, because in order to get to those countries that are not spending on 2%, they have to cross ours. If I look at the security environment and I look at war in Europe because of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, instability in the Middle East, increased strategic competition with an increasingly more assertive People's Republic of China. If I put all of these issues together, it is to me abundantly clear why the future of Europe and North America is a shared future. So from 1999 till 2022, the European countries' defense spending have increased for around 20%. In Russia at the same time, 292%. Welcome to the Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll hear from Estonia's current defence minister and one of its former presidents. But our first guest is Hanna Hopko, chair of the Democracy in Action Conference, former Ukrainian MP and once head of the Ukrainian Parliament's Committee on Foreign Affairs. I began by asking Hanna if she thinks Ukraine can survive this war without assistance from the US. United States supports this decisive one, and we do believe that both Democrats and Republicans will find a way because it's in American interest 
to help Ukraine. It's American reputation. America's leadership. next president may see it a different way, though. Uh, look, we used to uh, remember how next president uh, lead the U.S. and we survived at the time, by the way, and even received uh, javelins, <laughs> the little weapon. So we in Ukraine, after within one century, two genocides, one man made by Stalin through Holodomor and second now by Putin and Putinism. So actually, we know how to survive. But the question is about democracy worldwide. I recently traveled to Italy because of the G7 presidency, Germany and Norway, uh, sending a clear message that European security should not be a hostage of turbulences in the United States. More responsibility, ramping up production, introducing new advanced technologies, a localization business with Ukraine, because we demonstrated not just fighting spirit, also our creativity. When we destroyed 40% of Russian Navy fleet in the Black Sea using maritime drones and with limited resources from our Western partners. So I think Ukraine already contributed a lot by inventing modern technologies, and this is for the future, NATO, uh, Ukraine in NATO will make NATO a global alliance with all instruments of deterrence. But now we need to send this message that Europe, with all resources, including natural resources, people, uh, weapon industries, uh, together with Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, So we cannot depend on the results of the U.S. elections. And Crimea is achievable goal before the results in the United States. So I think Scholz should uh, seize the opportunity and demonstrate leadership within the European Union by providing Ukraine 500 uh, Taurus missiles. I just want to ask finally a question about the work I know you do with various uh, civic society organizations in Ukraine. And I know a lot of what they are doing is planning for the future, planning for what Ukraine will be like beyond this war. It is usually the case that any conflict, but especially a total war of the sort Ukraine is fighting, does have, for better and for worse, a transformative effect on the country that fought that war. Do you get a sense yet of how different Ukraine will be out the other side of this? So millions of uh, internally displaced people, veterans, we expect to have more than four millions of veterans. It's like one European it's country. A, a tenth of the population. Yes. So this is really important how to integrate them, how to build the state of gratitude with all financial uh, resources uh, incorporated into our budget. And I think uh, with the strongest army in the world with unique combat experience. This is how Ukraine could also be part of the global response of democracies, because the world is becoming, how to say, more militarized. Because this uh, fight between autocracies and democracies, it's inevitable. And the big uh, war or big conflict is just the question of time. So we need to be prepared. And the more lives of Ukraine defender we save now, the better these people then will be part of common defense and common response to global threats from authoritarian regimes and tyrannies. That was Hannah Hopko, chair of the Democracy in Action Conference and a former Ukrainian MP. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. 
This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, and our next guest is Thomas Hendrik Ilves, who was president of Estonia from 2006 to 2016. I asked him if he thinks that, since the concerns of the Baltic states were proved pretty much accurate two years ago, more people should be listening to them now. Well, for one, countries would be taking the 2% more seriously. All of the countries, except for Hungary, all the countries that are so-called new members. I mean, when we say new, we're talking about enlargements of Mm. NATO that took place 25 and 20 years ago. I mean, it's pretty bizarre to say new if Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic have have been NATO allies for a third of the existence of NATO. I mean, frankly, right? Nonetheless, these countries would bring a perspective that has been missing and that has been, I would say, absent in the naivete of so many people. I mean, that naivete was manifested very much two years ago at the Munich Security Conference that, when I was here. And it was four days before they invaded. And there was a complete split between the countries of the so-called East, I mean, the new NATO members who said, they're going to do it, they're going to do it, and the countries of the West. And no, no, that would be so stupid. And our point constantly has been, it doesn't matter if it's stupid from a Western rational calculus. That means nothing if you have decided that you are going to do something and if you are motivated, as we saw in Putin's article before he invaded, by some kind of bizarre historical... This was his, his big essay on the mystical destiny of the Ukrainian and Russian nations. Yes, precisely that one. I mean, if you're motivated by this kind of sort of bizarre, I mean, frankly, a historical, pseudo-historical vision of something, then you're not going to listen to rational arguments. It does not matter that you have the UN Charter forbidding changes in borders. It doesn't matter about the OSCE, the Charter of Paris, the Budapest Convention. None of those things matter if you're guided by this divine light from above. I did want to ask as well about what is likely to be, I'm sure, one of the recurring themes of the conference this year, which is the remarks made earlier this week by the former and possibly future president of the United States, that he would, in certain circumstances, basically wave Russia into the territory of of NATO partners that Trump felt were derelict. Do you think that NATO, or I guess maybe those same members of NATO, are taking a perhaps sanguine view of the United States? Do they need to get with the idea that they can't necessarily rely on the US eternally? Well, first of all, I would say the statements were more than bizarre. I mean, they were incredible. To urge Russia to invade a country and do the hell what you want, to Mm. quote him, We know what the hell they do. Mm. Just look at Bucha, look at Irpin. The once and possibly future president of the United States is urging Russia to commit rape, mass deportations, genocide. This is beyond comprehension. So that's the first thing. Whether it motivates the laggard countries, it's hard to say. I mean, it should. It doesn't really help us, those of us who have for all this time actually paid 
or rather, paid is the wrong word, that's Trump's bizarre understanding. Those who have spent at least 2% on national defense. Because in order to get to those countries that are not spending on 2%, they have to cross ours. But do you think from where we are now, and there has been a lot of talk among some fairly senior people the last few weeks about the prospect of a, a broader conflict involving Russia and Europe, can Europe actually look after itself absent the United States? Not yet. How far do you think Europe is if it decided tomorrow we're serious about this? Three to five years, and that requires a serious effort on the part of Europe. I think the place to start, which I urge now in my speeches and talks is that forget all this populist nonsense about migration. We have to defend Europe. And that means in the June European parliamentary elections, that should be the one issue. And every candidate should be asked, what is their position on European defense? Only then, if we have a sufficient majority of people who have a principal stand on the need for a credible defense on the part of Europe, with or without the United States, and in case without, will we end up with a commission that, in fact, will have to pay attention to these issues instead of dealing with secondary and tertiary questions that it seems to have been bogged down with. That was Tumas Hendrik Ilves, the former president of Estonia. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. The comments made about NATO by former US President Donald Trump shortly before the Munich Security Conference began were an inevitable talking point among the delegates. Our next guest is Benedetta Berti Alberti, the Head of Policy Planning at the Secretary-General's office at NATO. I began by asking Benedetta how Trump's comments had been received at NATO HQ. Right. So I think the Secretary General of NATO had a couple of press conferences and he was asked this question. So I'm going to repeat a little bit what he said, but essentially there were two elements. One element is to underline that our collective defense and security remains incredibly important for both sides of the Atlantic. So Mm. both for North America and for Europe. And it is both in North America and in Europe's vital security interest that we maintain that strong credibility of our deterrence and defense posture. So in that sense, there was a cautionary note, I would say. Let's try to not undermine what is essentially one of the key enablers of our shared security and prosperity for decades. The second point that the Secretary General made was, however, about the substance of part of the criticism that we have heard from many different U.S. administrations, and that is more about NATO allies, in particular European allies, and their need to invest more in defense. And from a NATO perspective, there is certainly a grain of truth, more than a grain of truth, that after the end of the Cold War, for decades, essentially, we spent too little on defense. And so in that sense, the request and the expectations that we do more and do better is well-founded. But I think what the Secretary General highlighted just a couple of days ago, and I think that's very important in the context of this conversation, is that European allies have stepped up. Mm -hmm. And if you look at where we were in 2014 and where we are now with respect to that goal of spending 2% of defense, of our GDP on defense, we went from essentially 
almost no country spending that 2% of defense to 18 countries spending 2% of defense. And for the first time, essentially, since the end of the Cold War, when you combine all the defense spending by European allies, you get a 2%. So in other words, there is a substantial remark about the need of Europeans to spend more and do so urgently. But on this one, I think we are delivering. And the story we, are, we have to tell is a good one. But NATO, like any military organization, obviously plans for stuff, and especially a defensive alliance. It plans for contingencies. It prepares for things. Do you even start thinking about how NATO would prepare for the possibility that its most important and most powerful member might actually leave the alliance? Well, I would say that I'm strongly convinced that that contingency, at least presenting these stark terms, is a little bit difficult to plan for because I am fundamentally convinced that a strong transatlantic alliance remains in the United States' vital interest, just as it remains in the vital interest of all our allies. It's something that they do, they stick together through NATO because it helps their security, helps their defense. And if I look at the security environment and I look at war in Europe because of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, instability in the Middle East, increased strategic competition with an increasingly more assertive People's Republic of China. If I put all of these issues together, it is to me abundantly clear why the future of Europe and North America is a shared future and why and why our combined strength is really going to be even more important in the years to come. So what I'm preparing for is how to continue to show the relevance and importance of the transatlantic bond to all allies. And then, of course, I would also say that since 2022 and the beginning of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, we have seen throughout our 31 allies a steady rise in support for NATO. And the United States is no different. NATO is highly popular with our citizens, a strong bipartisan support. And I think as long as we deliver, as long as we continue to do our job and serve the national security interests of all allies, we will be okay. We've talked before about the quite reasonable and indeed inevitable concern that was going to come into play about Ukraine, that publics in particular in NATO countries would kind of zone out of it, people would become frustrated with it, that attention might be consumed by a crisis elsewhere, which has of course actually been the case. Is that making things difficult, especially when we see that wavering attention being exploited by the Republican Party in the United States to hold up potentially more or less withdraw funding to Ukraine? Does that make NATO's job here more difficult? I think it makes NATO's job more important in the sense that I think it is very much our job to keep the focus on Ukraine and to keep reminding our political leadership and our publics about the stakes involved here. And I think the Secretary General of NATO does that time and time again. And that's why he stresses the importance of providing Ukraine with the support, financial, humanitarian, military that it needs right now so that it can continue to push back against aggression. And of course, we knew from the beginning that wars are difficult, that wars, after a while, result in fatigue from the population. It's not something that we weren't expecting. So in that sense, it's even more important for us to make a concerted effort to explain what the stakes are to explain that a world in which Putin's war of aggression is successful is a world in which our security, the security of each and every individual European is worse off, is a world of more instability, 
is a word in which deterrence is under pressure, is a word in which other authoritarian competitors, for example, in Beijing, may learn the wrong lessons about the, uh, the rewards of using force. We are not supporting Ukraine only because it's the right thing to do. I think we need to make crystal clear to our publics we're doing it because it's a key investment in our future security. And the reality is, yes, there has been some fluctuation in the level of support for Ukraine. But overall, we remain, I say we as the publics of the 31 allies, remain in favor of supporting Ukraine. So I think we are doing a good job at explaining why this is so important. That was Benedetta Berti Alberti, head of policy planning at the Secretary General's office at NATO. This is the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Our next guest is Hanno Pevka, the Minister of Defence of the Republic of Estonia. I began by asking him about the idea of a common Baltic defence zone, which has been recently announced, and if the planned 600 bunkers along Estonia's border with Russia were going to be, in part, a symbolic effort to show the rest of NATO how serious everyone needs to be about the Russian threat. Well, for me, this is just, you know, one of the measures among many others. So when we are buying new ammunition, when we are buying new howitzers, when we are buying new anti-vessel missiles or air defense or many other capabilities and equipment, then, you know, Baltic defense line is one in a row. This is something we can do during the peacetime. And this is exactly how we should take it, because we will not use these bunkers for military during the peacetime. So this is just a preparation, if necessary, and then hopefully we do not have to use them ever. And this is why I believe that it is important for us to be transparent and open and to say also that, yes, we believe that we are safe and we believe that NATO is strong and we believe that everything we are doing will keep us free and independent. But nevertheless, when we can do additionally to prepare for the darkest days, then we have to do it because otherwise we will just lose time if necessary. I know you've talked about as well these plans for a defence industrial park to manufacture ammunition and other material in Estonia. There are plans to further renovate the Amari Air Base, though obviously NATO aircraft have been stationed there for a while now. Just furthering what you were saying about how the bunkers would not be employed in peacetime, is it nevertheless the case that Estonia is going to have to become a more obviously militarised country just because of its size and where it is? Uh, we cannot change our geographical position. So we we have to live with, uh, with a neighbor who is hostile and who is uh, doing everything to show to the world that the West is weak and that they can do whatever they want, going by force to its neighbors, taking the land and claiming that it's theirs. So this is why, you know, we take it very seriously being a member of NATO already for 20 years that these commitments we all made when we joined NATO, that we have 2%, that we build our own army, we are taking these seriously. And, you know, now having 3%, that also means that, you know, we have more resources to buy what we need and to prepare uh, if necessary. But at the end of the day, it is one alliance and uh, we all have to, you know, keep in mind that there is Article 3, which is that you have to be ready to defend yourself first and foremost. I just want to go back to that idea of Russia being emboldened by what it might perceive 
as the West's weakness. And that could have disastrous consequences, whether it turns out that Russia is right or wrong about that, because Russia perceived that Ukraine was weak, and two years later has discovered that they misjudged that circumstance. But nevertheless, there is still a war. That being the case, if it is important for NATO and for the West to project strength to Russia, how much of a, a start did it give you when we heard you know, the possible next president of the United States saying earlier this week that in so many words, he simply doesn't really care all that much about America's NATO allies. I've said that before, and, and I'm ready to repeat it again. That you know, for me, as I see it, first and foremost, of course, it's a domestic issue, sure. domestic politics. Uh, what's uh, what's about? And when we take the reality, then I truly believe that as for European allies, U.S. is important. The same importance is for U.S. to have European allies with him. And we've been together, and we are together in in Iraq. We've been together in Afghanistan. We have different missions, and NATO has been able to keep the peace in Euro-Atlantic zone for 75 years. And now thinking that just one party will just go out of that, I do not see any advantage also for the United States. So this is why... uh, the request, or not the request, but the demand to European countries that everybody has to do 2% is totally legit. And we are advocating for that many years already. And we've said even that 2% is not enough. We've said that 25 should be you know, the target for us because Estonia is doing 3.2, which is very close to US 3.5, 3.6. So this is why you know, uh, at the moment we have to take this as a domestic politics in US and at the end of the day, we have to see what the American people will say, that who will be the next president of the US. But nevertheless, at this event, as you've been talking to other defence ministers, foreign ministers and prime ministers, do you get a sense that Europeans are starting to internalise the idea that we can't necessarily rely on the United States in the way that we have since the end of the Second World War? We do have to figure out how Europe could, if necessary, defend itself. Well, for that, we did collectively the new regional plans in NATO. And we approved these plans collectively, jointly, consensusly in Vilnius last year. And now these plans have to be executable. And when we want to have these plans executable, then we need to bring also new forces, new new capabilities to secure. So uh, when everybody will take the realistic view on Europe, then we all understand that first and foremost, Europeans have to have forces in place in order to defend Europe and European countries. And of course, reinforcement will come from US if necessary. And this is why European reinforcement goes when there is a need for that inside of the alliance. So this is why, you know, one for all, all for one principle has been set in a clear understanding that we will do that jointly or we will do that together if necessary. But nevertheless, do you think that's understood evenly across Europe? Because there was certainly, as you will remember, a couple of, well, a little less than a couple of years ago now, shortly after Russia launched its full-scale assault on Ukraine, there were people talking about, yeah, maybe we should have been listening to the Baltic states and those countries nearer Russia, which have direct experience of being overrun by Russia, being colonized, conquered by Russia, being occupied by Russia. So there did seem to be this moment of consensus that, yeah, we should have been listening to these NATO members further east. But two years in, do you think people's attention is starting to drift? Do you worry that there is a a lack of urgency among the European countries further west? 
When I take the my colleagues, the ministers of defense, and also hearing what the prime ministers and the heads of the states are saying, then I do not see that problem. And to understand the problem or the scale of the problem, we have to look into the history. So from 1999 till 2021 or two, the European countries' defense spending have increased for around 20%. Russia at the same time. 292%. And this is the answer to all of us. And one thing at the moment we have to understand that let's bring this comparison that you have a person who wants to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can use the steroids, but you cannot have the same body in six months. So it takes time to build the muscles. It's the same also with the European defense readiness. The lack of financing was just so big in the last 30 years that now... What we can do is to invest as much as we can, as quickly as we can. But also, on the other hand, uh, hope that the industry can uh, bring this also to the new level. So many challenges ahead of us, but once again, you know, that we do not have any, any luxury to postpone any decision, not only looking at Ukraine, but also looking at our own defence. That was Hanno Pavker, Estonia's Minister of Defence. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Finally, on today's show, we meet the Austrian General Robert Brieger, chairman of the EU Military Committee, the grouping which comprises the senior most military officer of every EU country. I asked General Brieger if he thinks Europe needs to rely less on the US for its defence. I speak from the perspective of the European Union External Action Service, and I think that the intent of Europe to weaken dependencies and to be more self-sustainable when it comes to security and defense is rightful. On the other hand, I think that the transatlantic relationship will remain crucial for European security and NATO will remain the first responder when it comes to collective defense. On the other hand, we have to distinct between, you know, political announcements and what's then going to happen in reality. I think it should work as an incentive for European decision makers to do more, but to do it still collectively with our partners abroad. Is there still difficulty within the EU in working collectively in military terms? Are people still jealously guarding their own militaries, their own industries? Is that still too big a problem? Well, it remains some sort of problem, although we made some really important steps forward, especially since the full-scale invasion of Russia to Ukraine. So I think it really worked as a wake-up call for Europeans that we need not only to invest more, but to do it in a more smart way in order to promote collaborative defense spending, common projects, and with that also strengthening the defense industrial basis of Europe to become more resilient and more fit for future challenges. That was the chairman of the EU Military Committee, General Robert Brieger. 
And that is it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. Special thanks this episode to Karina, Eleanor, Eric and all the team at the Munich Security Conference. We'd also like to thank Sarah Joan Fold for allowing us to record interviews at Black Space in Munich. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.